0: Good morning, friends. It would be good to keep our Bibles open as we look at this passage together and as we start a new series uh, in this letter of 1 John. Let me pray uh, before we begin. Dear Lord, I thank you uh, for the fellowship that we share together because of your grace to us. And Lord, I thank you for your word that you speak clearly to us through it. Lord, I pray this morning that I will speak faithfully, uh, that I will proclaim your truth Uh, wisely and clearly, and we pray that by your spirit, you will convict us of the things that we need to hear. Amen. It's hard to know what is true these days, and it's hard to know who to trust, isn't it? So you go to buy a box of cereal, Uh, it tells you it's healthy, and, and whole grains and things like that, and you take it home, and then you discover that it's got just as much sugar as cocoa pops. Uh, Or if you read the Sydney Morning Herald, it has the slogan, uh, independent always. And yet when you read it, it tends to be independent towards left-leaning politics. And that's because it tends to employ left-leaning journalists and its target audience and its target market is the inner west of Sydney. So then perhaps you go to your faithful and trustworthy friend Google and then you discover that everyone's an expert and they've got a research paper or a story to prove it. But even when you find someone who is a genuine expert from a credible source, it's still hard to find consensus So I read uh, this during the week. John Ioannidis, whose expertise lies in rooting out the failures of medical expertise, found that a whopping two-thirds of published medical research was refuted outright within a matter of years, if not months, or was declared to have exaggerated its findings. Now, his research only focused on what was written in the most credible medical journals. But of course we're still presuming that he is actually an expert and that he has done his research rigorously and has actually reflected the data faithfully. And so if we're not sure who to trust, then often we're simply left with going with the flow. You know, where's everyone else going? Because they seem to be going there so confidently that we think surely they know where they're going. But that can be difficult, can't it, as Christians, as we seek to share the gospel into our community. Because actually that's a very counter-cultural message. That message doesn't go with the flow. But in our struggle to find truth, it can also reflect some of our own insecurities and our own doubts. Can we really trust the Bible as the Word of God? Is Jesus really the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again? And did he really pay for our sins? Because they're big truth claims. And there's a lot at stake, isn't there? I mean, you get your cereal wrong. And you just sort of get fat and perhaps, you know, type 2 diabetes. But get Jesus wrong and there are real all-of-life consequences. If you are a Christian and Jesus really isn't the Son of God, then you have wasted this life on a false hope. On the other hand, if Jesus really is the Son of God, then he is the only hope For humanity, not just in this present life, but for eternity. There is literally heaven and hell at stake. But just to make things a little more confusing and perhaps a little more confronting, even within the so-called Christian community, we can't always find agreement of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So let me read two quotes from Anglican bishops from America. Salvation comes not from being cleansed of our sins by the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, but through the divination of humanity through the work of the human will. It just takes a little while to take all of that in, doesn't it? I'm not quite sure what divination is for her. But whatever it is, it has nothing to do with Jesus. Or perhaps this one. This one's a little clearer. God is not an external supernatural entity ruling the world from above the sky. Life has taught us that theism is dead. There is no supernatural God directing the affairs of history. Again, astounding claims. Now, admittedly, uh, these are two quite extreme views, but they are not unique. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in Jerusalem, uh, which was a wonderful privilege, uh, gathering together with about 2,000 other Bible-believing Anglicans. Uh, And this is the statement that they released, or a very small part of the statement they released at the end of the conference. For some time, our communion has been under threat from leaders who deny the lordship of Christ and the authority of scripture. In the late 20th century, human sexuality became the presenting issue. So if all of this feels pretty confronting, then uh, hopefully it gives us some empathy for what the Christians were feeling when John was writing this letter to them. Because he's writing uh, to a group of people who are beginning to doubt if they have got it right. So it seems from, from what we read within the letter that they've been influenced by a group of people who claim to know the truth, but they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're kind of like these two American bishops. And so the message they proclaim obviously sounds compelling and it comes with a level of authority but it is a fundamental distortion from what Jesus taught. And so the the Christians are feeling incredibly vulnerable. You know, to put into the modern vernacular, what's fake news and alternative facts and what's actually true? And so John writes to give this group of Christians confidence. They know the truth. Their faith is rightly founded. Jesus does have the power to save and Jesus has saved them. And so throughout this letter, John wants to reject the teaching of these wolves and he wants to give these Christians a picture of what authentic faith looks like. So he's saying to them, if this is what you believe... And if this is how you live faithfully with Christ, then you can be confident that one day when you stand before God, he will say, welcome home. That's where we are going in this letter of 1 John. So with that in mind, I want to pick up three themes. I want to pick up that John is a reliable witness. That's where he starts. Secondly, he testifies that Jesus really is the word of life. And then thirdly, he writes so that they might have fellowship. Fellowship together, but more significantly, fellowship together with God. So let's have a look at verse 1. If you've got it open, that would be fantastic. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our our hands have touched. So John lived with Jesus for three years. He heard what Jesus had to say in public, as well as what he had to say in private. He was there at the crucifixion, and he ran just a little bit faster than Peter, and saw the empty tomb. He was in the upper room when Jesus appeared to them, and he was there a week later when Jesus appeared again and Thomas touched the wounds on Jesus' side. So he is qualified to know and he is qualified as a witness. He is a biased witness. But so he should be. What he has seen and what he has experienced is so compelling and so clear and so undeniable that he cannot help but believe it and then tell others. I think one of the challenges for sceptics as you read an account like this or you read uh, accounts by John is you've got to ask what, what would motivate him to lie? Because there's no financial benefit for him. There's no social prestige. There's no uh, institution uh, that he is seeking to protect. In fact, for him, his convictions simply lead to more trouble and strife and more persecution. And for the majority of the disciples, it will lead to their death. But he is convinced that it is true because of what he has experienced. And therefore he is qualified as a credible witness. Unlike these wolves who claim to know the truth but actually have no experience with Jesus. And so at the end, what does he proclaim? Verses 1 and 2 He proclaims the word of life. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So Jesus is the word of life. In the beginning, God spoke and through his word, the world was created. In the Old Testament, God speaks his word through his prophets. And now Jesus comes, and not only does he fulfill God's word in the Old Testament, he's the fulfillment of the word, but he also proclaims God's word. How do we know God's word is faithful? Well, Jesus proclaims it, and then Jesus demonstrates his power, And his ability to proclaim it faithfully because he really is the son of God. So unlike David, for example, or his son Solomon, who were given the title son of God, he really is, from the beginning, from before the creation of the world, the son of God. Part of the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is life personified. He's been with the Father from the beginning and he has now appeared to humanity and he brings life. So in the present we are truly alive when we are living with the God who created us for the purpose he has given us. I think there are always times in life when we feel lost. You know, It's not necessarily because everything is going badly. In fact, sometimes it's because things are going really well. You know, we have good relationships or we have a good family. We, we like our work. Uh, we enjoy our hobbies or going for a walk at the beach or surfing or cross-stitch. Love my cross-stitch. Not really. But, you know, life can often be good and yet, despite all of those good things, we can feel that life is lost. And for some, that creates a, a real sort of moment of crisis. You know, what's my life about? What's my purpose for being? And even as Christians, we're, we're not exempt. And, and we get particularly lost, I think, when we start to expect God to live up to our expectations and for God to give us the life we want. If that's our mindset, then, then we've turned everything upside down. It starts with actually we live for Christ. We are followers of Christ and our purpose is, finds meaning when it aligns with God's purpose. And our aspirations find meaning when they align with God's aspirations for us. That's what it means to have life in the full. But not only is Jesus the life in the present, he is the eternal life. He is eternal in nature and he comes to bring eternal life. So what the relationship we have now and our experience now both with each other and with God is marred and broken by the consequences of our sin. But we look forward to a time when those relationships exist without sin, where they are perfect, where there is no more suffering and pain, where we're no longer contributing to the suffering and pain of others how he brings life, and do I have eternal life? They're two questions that John will answer as he goes through the letter. But in his opening two verses, John wants us to be overwhelmingly clear about the foundation on which we stand. So John is a reliable witness and his testimony is unambiguous. The historical person of Jesus is the living, eternal Son of God. And he is the one who brings eternal life. And this is going to be important because Jesus as the word of life is also the means by which we have fellowship with God. So verses 3 and 4, we see John's motivation for writing. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship literally means simply to have something in common. In this case, it's a common commitment and belief in what John has seen and heard, that Jesus really is the eternal Son of God. But that fellowship only becomes meaningful when it's connected to God himself. So it's one thing for us to have fellowship with each other. That's, that's lovely. But the whole meaning behind our fellowship, the whole purpose of our fellowship is driven by who we are together in Christ. It's more than simply being friends or having something in common or having something to do on Sunday morning. It's a fellowship that connects us to God. And so it's about restored relationships, restored with each other but also restored with God. What sin has broken, Jesus fixes when he died and rose again. And true fellowship means coming to God on his terms. So we can't just simply make it up. I can't simply redefine God in my image and then say it is true. I can't redefine sin simply because sin is natural or our culture finds the Christian view unacceptable. We know what fellowship looks like because God has spoken to us through his word. That is the truth that we hold on to. It's the truth that he has spoken in his word, and it's the truth that he has spoken in his son. So I'm not in fellowship with Bishop Shelby Spong, because whatever he believes is not the truth that God has revealed to us doesn't mean I can't love him as a human being. Uh, If I see him, I can be perfectly civil to him, but I'm not in fellowship with him. He's one of these wolves who wants to lead people astray. But often the issue is more subtle. So let me uh, read another quote that came out of the conference uh, that I was at in Jerusalem, uh, because it gives some insight into how subtle and divisive Uh, false fellowship can really be but it's always couched in wonderful language of unity and inclusiveness and a new personal favourite that I heard recently which was good disagreement Uh, but this is how one person talked uh, about the conference whatever we hear in the coming year we must realise how precious our unity is and seek to keep our fellowship alive between each other And remember that we are called to exclude no one from the love of God. Now, absolutely, we should try to keep our unity alive. That's what John is doing in this letter. But he does it by refuting false teaching. He doesn't accommodate it and call it fellowship. He speaks against it. If we simply accommodate any fellowship, then we may well have fellowship with one another and lose our fellowship with God. The bishop is also right when he says we are called to exclude no one from the love of God. But I suspect what he means and what we mean is actually quite different. Because if I love someone enough, I actually challenge them about what they believe. I challenge sin. I challenge sin in my own life, and I call myself, And I call us to repent and believe. It's not simply accepting everything as true. There is absolutely no doubt that at times, and in lots of passages, the Bible is hard to understand. And therefore we do need to approach it with a sense of humility and pray that God will direct our understanding. And I need to accept, and we need to accept, that we will not always get it right. But that doesn't mean that every interpretation is equally valid. And if our understanding of what the Scriptures say starts to align more and more with the world around us, then we should be incredibly suspicious of how we are treating the Bible. As a group of Christians, there will be times when we disagree. I will not always get it right from the front. That's exactly why I encourage you to have your Bible open. Is what I'm saying consistent with what your Bible is saying to you? And if it's not consistent, then you should challenge it. You should come and talk to me. Uh, Please do it graciously. That would be fantastic. Uh, Please come accepting that you also might be wrong. Uh, But that's okay. Let's talk about it together. Let's wrestle with it together because it's not about my ego and it's not about you winning an argument. Ultimately, it's about recognising the truth and seeking to honour God with our whole life and to see him glorified in everything that we do. And if we can't come to a common understanding, then we need to decide what's at stake. Is this so fundamental to what we believe as Christians that we can no longer be in fellowship with one another? Or is our disagreement significant, but perhaps not salvation-defining? But whatever we conclude graciously, listening to God's word, whatever we conclude, We need to put truth before a false unity because it's the truth that saves. It's the truth that brings freedom and life. I would love us to always be united, but we must be united and have fellowship in the truth. And it's fellowship in the truth that makes John's joy complete. And hopefully our joy completes So, the last words of these first four verses. We write this to make our joy complete. There's nothing better than being confident that someone else is a Christian. You know, when you hear them speak about what it means to love Jesus, when you look at their lives, not perfect, but even when they recognize sin and repent, uh, there's incredible joy in that, isn't there? There's an incredible joy in meeting a stranger for the first time and not just you know, sort of wondering, oh, they're, they're nice, perhaps they're a Christian, but really knowing it. No, no, they're my brother and sister in Christ. We've never met, but all, you know, from that moment you know it, you, you know, there's this bond between you. There's something incredibly special about that. And there's something incredible about knowing it within yourself when you feel confident of your faith when you're confident about who Jesus is and his purpose for you in your life. There's even something great about hating your own sin. You know, sometimes in our life we get complacent about our sin and we just don't seem to care that much. I think part of not caring is that we've lost that, that connection of, of what it really means with our relationship with God. So even, when, even in our contrition, You know, as we recognise our sin, as we repent, there is a joy. There's also a freedom in recognising that it no longer holds power over you. That's what John wants for this community of Christians. And I hope that's what we want for each other. I hope we take pleasure in watching each other grow together. In both the good times and the bad times of life. And I hope we also recognise that we've got a part to play in it. That each of us has a role in our fellowship together. So it might be a word of encouragement. It might be wise and godly advice at just the right time. It might be our earnest prayerfulness for someone else. It might be seeking them out to simply uh, share uh, a coffee or lunch together or just a, a walk, you know, through the streets. But this desire to build one another up in godliness. That's what real fellowship looks like. Uh, we, we don't really come together just to simply consume. Uh, as part of this morning, even just being in this room, it's a statement of solidarity. Here's where I stand with you beside me. And that gives me confidence to stand more firmly. It's one of the joys of what we do. We don't talk about it. It's just what we experience. So can I encourage you, new term, 10 weeks ahead. Uh, what's two things? So let's not get too ambitious. Let's not make it 12. We'll go a bit harder than one. Two. Two. What are two things that you could do this term just to be that little bit more intentional in how you might encourage someone else? Don't make it impossible, but just what are two things you could do? For Sarah and I, we've talked about this, we talked about it as a Bible study. It was one of the questions sorry, in our Connect group. Uh, Two things uh, I want to work on and we're going to work on together. Uh, We do want to work on our uh, hospitality. You know, it was wonderful we had some people over for lunch uh, the other day and we do that uh, reasonably often. Uh, But not just to have lunch and enjoy each other's company, but also to have Christian conversations as part of that. Uh, You know, how are we going together? Uh, The second thing I want to do better is just follow up people we haven't seen for a while. Uh, so, so we do sort of take a, a role so we, we know, you know where people are going because I can't remember everyone, sorry. Uh, but yeah, we do want to make sure that if someone hasn't been for a while that, that we notice. And I know lots of you call people through the week just to see how they're going and that's wonderful. Uh, I, don't, I don't call them to make them feel guilty, they're completely the opposite. I want them to know that they're valued and that they're missed and if there's something we can do to help them then that would be good to know. Uh, I want to make sure that, that people feel that they are at home here and for us to do everything in our power to help them. Because uh, that's part of, of caring for one another. So a term ahead, two things. In your head, Not you have to do it this very second. Have you finished? Just kidding. <laughs> two things, but then, slightly more challenging, tell someone else and then if someone tells you Ask them in six weeks. How did you go? Just a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of accountability. But all for the sake of our fellowship together and our fellowship is with God. Let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, I do thank you for the grace that you show us that by your Son you gather us into your family and therefore we have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. Uh, I pray that we can joyfully live that fellowship out, uh, that as a community of of Christians, uh, that we will be committed to growing together. And so by your Spirit, I pray you will show each of us uh, how we might do that together, uh, for your sake and for your glory. Amen.